This is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. The other day, Netflix released a three-part documentary about Woodstock 99 called Trainwreck. I was 19 when that happened, and as a fan of pretty much every performer, it was a huge moment in music as a whole and for myself. Before watching, I remembered the many reports of rape and sexual assault, the mud and the fires, but the details shown in Trainwreck made it even more horrific. For those who weren't around, Woodstock 99 was to be the 30-year celebration of the original three-day music festival full of peace, love, and weed. And probably acid, too. Definitely. It was anti-war, anti-military, and anti-capitalism. And the same guy who put together the first one also ran the one in 99. It was disheartening to see that over time, he'd gone from peace and love to how do we make every aspect of this event profitable? Instead of it being about the music and people and connection, the festival runners had no clue about the artists or their audiences and never considered the needs of 250,000 youngsters that would be camping, partying, showering, and shitting in an abandoned military base for three days. Attendees were price gouged for food and water, and as the asphalt baked them from below, the sun above blasted the crowd into madness. The surrounding buildings of the military industrial facility offered little shade or escape. Creating a lineup that included corn, Kid Rock, Limp Biscuit, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers pumped the already discontented crowd into a frenzy. Festival department heads failed to create an experience that would peak and release each night, giving its quarter million guests the chance to cool off both mentally and physically. So the fury of the crowd turned toward festival staff, security peace patrol guards, vendors, facility structures, and vehicles. It was bad, is what he's saying. The mob's weapon of choice was fire, and the night burned orange and ember choked across all three nights. The crowd had become like a single creature, breathing and moving together in waves and reverting to its lowest, most animalistic form. As the documentary proceeds, you can feel the tensions rising with each passing hour, and it made my heart race with fear to watch footage of groups of men aggressively surrounding girls and women just trying to have some topless, hippie summer fun. As security was both stretched to breaking and completely unable to enforce festival rules in any way, the most dangerous men in the crowd used it as an opportunity to commit an untold number of rapes and sexual assaults. By the end of those three days, there were as many deaths reported, due to heat, a heart condition, and an incident involving a pedestrian and a vehicle. Even though the mob of a quarter million was out of control, it didn't do as much damage as it could have. But as you watch, you can see how that crowd could have overrun the backstage area if they had wanted. And even killed Jewel! Oh God, not Jewel. America's sweetheart. The catastrophe of Woodstock 99 was anger given life by the greed of those in power. And it is miraculous it wasn't a mass casualty event. I was already writing about the 1968 
Oregon State Penitentiary riot when I began watching that documentary, and I couldn't help but see the correlations between the festival rioters and those in the prison. And I know a music festival in no way compares to prison, but they share similar issues. Corners were cut to increase profit, and the actual needs of people were ignored and their complaints dismissed, resulting in chaos. So, feeling abandoned, the mob lashed out, the only way to be heard. And to be clear, I am not equating the rapes and sexual assaults with the rioting. They are vastly more heinous and troubling, though both were completely preventable. Quote, the tardy recognition of racial, national, and religious identities in the United States gave impetus to the social revolution of the 1960s. The United States was in a process of growing liberalization, tolerance, receptiveness, and impartiality. The year before the original Woodstock 69 was one hell of a year. In January 1968, the American public's support of the conflict in Vietnam turned after the Tet Offensive and the Siege of Khe Sanh drew heavy casualties, both military and civilian. On April 4th, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. On June 5th, Robert F. Kennedy, a 1968 Democratic presidential candidate known as a civil rights advocate and organized crime smasher, was assassinated at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. My mother and father, Gibb and Nancy, were that night in the ballroom Kennedy was heading to when he was shot. Gibb had canvassed for Bobby in the four days leading up to the primary election, and when he met by chance someone in the Kennedy campaign, and she found out the staggering number of houses he'd canvassed in L.A. summer heat, she set up a meet between Gibb and Robert Kennedy that was never to be. I asked my dad to write about that night for this bit of the episode. Dad said when he proofread what he sent me, he wept. The pain is still there. On July 23rd, racial tensions exploded into riots in the wake of a mass casualty shootout in Cleveland, Ohio, that took place between police and a black power group. The civil upheaval continued for four days. The next day in Oklahoma, Kristen Chenoweth was born, which was as equally cultural shaping. <laughs> which I was, love her. <laughs> which was as equally culture shaping an event as any of these other lists. <laughs> right? She's also America's sweetheart, I think. Yeah, I love her. Broadway's sweetheart. I'm just saying it's important. <laughs> Maybe not equally, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, probably not. A flu pandemic reached the United States in September of 1968. Oh, what's that, you say? You're damn right they didn't teach this one in school. Over the next three years, it would kill between one and four million people worldwide. Did you guys know about that? No. I've heard of the one in, what is it, 1918? Yeah. But this was just like a regular flu? Yep, regular flu pandemic, pandemic, and it, yep. Yeah, I don't think we talked about it in school. I, I never even heard of it, did you? Uh, I, only because I was researching flu stuff a while back. Well, there you go. Wow. But otherwise, you wouldn't have any clue. Correct. Wow. Recent innovations in the ease and availability of international air travel are pointed to as contributing factors to the rapid spread of the virus, which, of course, was given racist monikers like the Hong Kong flu. In November, Richard Nixon was elected president, which led to a time of prosperity and peace the country had never seen. Just kidding. Just kidding! <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> Sorry. And in December, 
the Apollo 8 astronauts became the first people to orbit the moon, which some of Oregon State Penitentiary's inmates may have been able to spy a glance of at an angle through a tiny cell window or in the space between buildings as they moved throughout their blocks. I began my research on this case searching Oregon State Penitentiary. I limited this search to 1968 because I wanted to get a feel for the prison and prisoners' conditions in the time leading up to the riot, which occurred in March. To say I found some evidence of inmate discord and a facility literally rotting from the inside out would be an understatement. The first article I found, dated New Year's Day 1968, details the previous night's killing by police shootout of one Daniel Clyde Death Jr. in Baker, Oregon, 340 miles east of Salem. And yeah, you heard me. D-E-A-T-H. He had been an inmate of Oregon State Penitentiary until four months prior, as had his accomplice, Galen Clipston. Policeman John Dugan's left index finger had been shot off in the exchange of gunfire, which began as a traffic stop because the car had been swerving across the road. As Dugan approached, Death and Clipson aimed a pistol and shotgun through their open windows and began firing. Officer Dugan had also taken a bullet to the hip. Clipson was shot in the neck but survived. Death Jr. had been shot in the head. The same night Mr. Death died, New Year's Eve, 22-year-old John Sipes, who was in the penitentiary for assault and battery, attacked a guard for the second time that day. The first incident occurred earlier in the yard, and the second in the dining room that evening after the viewing of a film. Once subdued, Sipes was sent to an isolation cell, where he remained until February 2nd, his final day alive. In 1968, Oregon State Penitentiary, in Salem, was in crisis. And it seemed like fate that a local newspaper, the Capital Journal, had printed its last article in a series regarding the prison's declining conditions, which had become so dire, three inmates died of suicide within the span of a month. I don't know what the normal numbers are, but that seems high. It's very high. The body of John Sipes, whom I just mentioned, was found hanging by the neck from a bedsheet on February 2nd. Serving 20 years for armed assault and robbery, he had been alone in an isolation cell for over a month. His death would prompt a lawsuit brought on by his mother for $325,000, or nearly $3 million today. In her suit, Laverne Grant, Sipes' mother, claimed that officials should have known her son would have attempted to take his own life, and therefore should have had precautions and checks in place. She also claimed to have evidence of marijuana and weapons being trafficked to and from the prison. Conveniently, just five days after the suit was filed, Larry Stubbs, who was an OSP for burglary, was charged with narcotics possession. Surely a PR move by the prison. The drugs he was in possession of were found on December 31st, the same day of John Sipes' multiple altercations. Unfortunately, I couldn't find the outcome of the lawsuit, so perhaps it was settled privately. On Valentine's Day, 34-year-old inmate Doyle Trapp died from self-inflicted wounds to his wrist and throat. Monday, March 4th, James Perry, also 34, died from suicide. He cut himself with a razor blade. Perry was serving a term of five years for getting caught being an ex-convict in possession of a gun, and he'd been at the penitentiary for less than a month. The first in the series of articles the Capitol Journal printed detailed awarding Clarence Gaddon's advanced age 
and declining health as a contributing factor to the unrest, as those interviewed stated plainly that he could no longer appropriately perform his job. The turnover rate for correctional officers was high, a combination of low pay and burnout from the rising tensions within the prison. Employees interviewed anonymously claimed that contraband like weapons and drugs moved freely about the institution. The second article in the series, published March 8th, dug further into Warden Gladden's weakening grip on the prison. He had come down with pneumonia in January and often suffered from intense back pain. He'd been away from his post since January 22nd and on doctor's advice, could not yet return to work. More anonymous prison staff said that old coot Gladden, quote, resisted the new wave of prison rehabilitation ideas that were gaining popularity across the country. The final article in the series focuses on Corrections Division Administrator George W. Randall and his desire to enact further rehabilitation programs than had been established at the prison. Randall also pushed for a second prison facility to be built, with the goal of separating the general population from those with cognitive disabilities and mental illness. The article details good intentions, but shows that very little action had taken place regarding OSP's reform. A college study program called Upward Bound was established at the prison, and those involved in the program were given freedoms previously unknown to those incarcerated. Their special library hours, access to a television and exercise equipment, and the bypassing of routine searches and inspections fomented discord and agitation among those not chosen to participate, which was every other man inside, except the 26 chosen Upward Boundees. That reminds me of, like, tag classes when I was a kid. What's that? Talented and gifted. So kids were tested if they were shown to uh, be doing better academically. And then every, like, Wednesday or something, they all got to leave and go to their special school to take their special classes. My mom said, no, I couldn't do it. My mom wouldn't let me get tested. I didn't find that out till I was a grown-ass adult. I also was supposed to skip a grade, and my mom said no, and I, I appreciate that <sighs> Yeah, about that's her. good. Yeah. I would have liked to have known that they wanted to test me. I would have felt like less, um, you know, like an idiot outcast, but tag. So I can understand on a very small level being a, I was, as a child, I was like, I want to go see what they're doing at this special school where they get to go outside or they get to do special science projects or all this cool stuff, and I'm just stuck at school because I'm the stupid kid or whatever. So... I can, I can understand where those feelings would be coming from. Pretty frustrating. Very. And a little fun fact here. From January 1st to March 9th, the day the riot began, I found three instances of inmates escaping. One walked away from a work detail, one fled in a stolen truck and ended up committing a home invasion and shooting a woman twice. She lived. And the last escapee used a forklift to get himself over a wall. Wow. What I'm saying is, Officials were running the loosiest, goosiest, no rules, just right prison, maybe in the entire country. Yeah, I feel like if the inmate can get access to a forklift, probably not the most secure. I will say we still have a lot of escape prisoners in Oregon. That's ha- true. That work release program, like they disappear and dip out of that pretty regularly. We usually recapture them, but I can think of three that are on the run right now. So even with the better prison system. We still have escapees. Um, we got to work on that. Definitely. And all of this was under the eye of administrator George W. Randall, who got the job in 1965. He was progressive in his support of work release and other programs of rehabilitation, which clashed harshly 
with Warden Gladden's old-school grind-them-into-submission tactics and led to a crisis in leadership. And here, a 1938 quote from The Shadows, Oregon State Penitentiary's self-published magazine. Quote, Castellated walls tower up and shadow into sinister oblivion a thousand empty lives. Each brick in the wall might scream out the anguish of a futile dream exploded. Beyond the wall is light and all within gloom. With future freedom a star of hope on the horizon of life, convicts pace up and down the exercise yard. Oregon State Penitentiary is the oldest and only maximum security prison in the state. There were around 1,400 prisoners at OSP in 1968, contained within its 25-foot-high wall that extends 15 feet into the ground. Within those walls, correctional officers upheld order with fists and billy clubs, alongside the ever-looming threats of a stint in segregation, which were never set with an end date, leaving inmates to toil in a private hell of darkness and filth. In the days leading up to the unrest, a convict was asked about the prison's never-ending strife. He said, quote, Today, maybe we are animals. Every man reaches his boiling point. At 4.15 on March 9, 1968, the riot began when a guard stopped an inmate for a random search. The inmate refused and began fighting with the guards. As it went on, other prisoners joined the conflict, and within the first hour, nearly 40 hostages had been taken, consisting of correctional officers and prison staff. The prisoners in charge demanded all segregated inmates and isolation units be released, and for every 20 minutes that passed in stalemate, a hostage would be killed. As the number of rioters ballooned to over 700, the prison's control center was overtaken by inmates wielding handmade shivs, tipping the power balance and essentially seizing control of the entire prison. Over the first several hours of unrest, 36 hostages were freed and only four remained. They were Correctional Officers Lieutenant Ralph E. Pribble, Sergeant R.D. Myers, Lieutenant Hal Masterson, and Officer C.E. Mann. Department of Corrections Administrator Randall arrived and assumed control of forces outside the facility. He ordered that no force, shooting, or tear gassing would take place, which completely neutered the established riot control plan. When inmates heard this, they rampaged unchecked, burning through cell blocks and workshops, the kitchen, and dining room, looting and assaulting each other. Quote, By nightfall, the buildings were burning. The commissary had been looted. Blankets and bedding were brought up to the yard by the inmates. Small makeshift tents sprang up. Convicts were seen eating fresh bread by the loaf and sheet cakes by the dozen. They drank milk by the gallon and cooked meat and steaks over large bonfires built from the wreckage of the prison. The loud strains of steel guitars played in the background as a night of destruction occurred. There were many assaults, several knifings, and total destruction of property. Taunting profanities were thrown to the guards, whom they knew could not take action. Josh, in your opinion of what you've read, was it just a numbers thing because so many prisoners were involved? You know, it's just hard to imagine 40 officials with batons and handcuffs and who knows what else they had as far as weaponry to be taken over by the inmates. Was it just a numbers thing that it's this many guys going at once? I think so. Yeah, it was, it was about half the population of the prison. Mm. So 
I no think lack so. of preparation. And yeah, they weren't prepared. And the morale among staff and guards is at oh, a right. time low. They're not, so bad. They're not going to want to fight for for that control. Yeah, they're going to want to get I'm away. I'm not going to die for this building. And they know that they're all that every inmate in that place blames them personally, probably. Yeah. Even though it's not their fault. Though the physical violence is. I like to think there are some of those <clears throat> guards who didn't believe in their boss either who yeah. kind of let it happen mm-hmm. and just backed away like well yeah that's kind of their own form of rioting like yep. yeah I'll go with you guys and it was it was also a clash of their two ideologies and mm-hmm. the, and then and as a result they I mean they just didn't know which direction to go anybody prisoners staff anybody you know I'm bad with names so we had the a warden that's Gladden and he was the old guy and, and he was very old school in. yeah and then the new guy was like the administrator guy. Yeah, so he's he's the level above Gladden. So oh, he runs okay. everything in the Department of Corrections. And then Gladden is the warden of the penitentiary. Oh, yeah. yeah. Administrator Randall entered into negotiations with a body of convicts and their spokesman, Tony Graven and Billy Ray Bowling. Randall did this alone without consulting any prison officials or riot control experts, of which he could access freely. He nearly agreed to release all segregated inmates before an assistant of his said, hey boss, that's a really terrible idea. Luckily, he took the advice, and the men remained in isolation. For some reason, Randall also allowed the press to interview inmates through the prison gates. Their complaints weren't extravagant, they were simply looking to improve their basic human needs. Warden Gladden was too strict, their food was cold, and the medical care was abysmal. Their first demand was the resignation of Warden Gladden. They got their wish when, just hours later, Gladden resigned officially, though he had actually submitted the paperwork three days before the start of the riot, due to his failing health. When Randall met with the convicts again, they presented him with nine further demands. Medical improvements, reestablish of the inmate council, a new canteen, less forced savings, school and work release programs, improved correspondence and visiting policies, bath and entertainment enhancements, vocational programs, and clothing. It was high noon on March 10th, 20 hours into the riots, when Randall agreed to address and make changes to all points on their list, bringing the carnage to an end with $2 million in damage and the death of one inmate, Thomas Bond. Governor Tom McCall's chief of staff was minutes from ordering a tactical assault on the prison when negotiations came to agreeable ends. A grand jury later concluded that riot officers could have ended the unrest earlier. Administrator George Randall, was the only witness called who disagreed. He came under intense scrutiny in the wake of the riot, with the grand jury unveiling the truth about the man who came to Oregon in 1965. Quote, with a resume implying academic excellence and graduate work at Auburn, Georgetown, George Washington, and Wisconsin universities, he claimed to have served with the FBI as an executive assistant to J. Edgar Hoover. In fact, Randall never graduated from college. He was never an agent of the FBI, but only a messenger boy and typist for the Bureau for two years. In the years he claimed service to the FBI, he was actually working in an insurance company and later a furniture factory. There was not a single shred of evidence that Randall had any experience in corrections or penology. It's just shocking because he's just a full-on con man, basically. I wonder how often that happened back then. A lot. All the time. Because there wasn't like a background check like we do today. Even those you can get by. Yeah. Even And, you know, nowadays you can have references that are just friends. So back then, if they even checked that. 
and you can yeah much more easily check a person's face and to make sure it's the face it's supposed to be yeah, yeah and it's kind of surprising <laughs> that like working in corrections he'd never crossed paths with someone else that was also actually in sure, the FBI or yeah. something to be like, oh, did you know so-and-so or so-and-so? And, and be like, caught. Uh, no, I worked at the super secret department. Like, <laughs> yeah, I believe Randall worked in the Midwest or on the East Coast before. Mm. So I think that he didn't maybe didn't, didn't know anyone here. Maybe there was a reason he moved to Oregon. There's a reason that so many people head west for yeah. that sort of thing. And he got away with it for, Running for away a few from years. Something. But then, yeah. This hadn't been the first conflict between prisoners and officials at OSP. On Friday, July 10th, 1953, 1,100 inmates took over the prison. Just like in 68, the grievances were in regard to the medical care, segregation and isolation units, recreational options, clothing, and food. At one point, two guards in the hospital faced the oncoming mob. Before they could become injured, hostages, or worse, they were rescued. Later, the dining room was destroyed, and somehow, officials were able to open the doors to the yard and herd everyone outside. Locking down the cell blocks, the rioters were now confined to the yard. Spotting a boxcar at the rail gates, prisoners joined together in trying to push it through the gates. Rifle fire from the lookouts injured one inmate and put their attempt to a stop. Unlike Gladden, the warden called for support, summoning officers from Portland, the Dalles, and Eugene. By the end of the night, more than 25 officers had arrived. Also unlike 68, the riot went on through the weekend. Five buildings were set ablaze, and unable to go back inside, the inmates started to succumb to the heat of mid-July. Besides being forced into the sun, they couldn't access food, water, or shade. Digging into the yard, they had hoped to hit the water main and at least quench their thirst and cool off, but their attempt was unsuccessful. By Monday the 13th, hunger from three foodless days brought an end to the crisis. It's a shame those issues weren't addressed in 1953, as it could have prevented the incident in 1968. But things changed in 1969. The Oregon State Board of Control, established in 1913 to coordinate the management of state institutions, construction of state buildings, and other duties assigned by the legislature, was abolished, returning power to the state institutions themselves. John Galvin replaced George Randall as administrator of corrections, and he was an old pro, with two decades of work under his belt at federal prisons in Kentucky, and Hoyt Cup became Warden Gladden's successor. Cup saw the prison's issues immediately and took action to create peace and provide value to the lives of his wards. He often ate with inmates and chatted with them in the yard. He also expanded the prison's recreational and educational programs, constructed an 18-hole mini-golf course, and the prison's first psychiatric unit, and at one point even had peacocks walking the grounds. The day after the riot, freshly minted Superintendent Cup walked the prison's dining room as the inmates ate. He said, quote, In my own way, I had to let them know I was running the place, and not just by being big and domineering. You have to have good discipline. You can't let people know you're fearful. He had a simple set of principles that became the state's unofficial rules. Serve hearty food, keep the institution clean, don't lie to an inmate, promote communication between inmates and officers, provide prisoners with work, education, and recreation to limit their idle time, offer rehabilitation programs to all inmates desiring change, 
treat inmates with respect, and expect them to follow suit. The Oregon Department of Corrections does not have a listing in its historical chronology for 1968. It skips from 1965 to 1969. Nice. That's a little suspicious. Just a little bit of a gap there. We don't remember what happened <laughs> he, at this time. We just don't remember. I feel like that's a joke I've seen in a movie about like German history. How they're like, oh, we have a gap in the early 40s. <laughs> but yeah, it's like, why would you not have documentation for a prison? for that time. And I mean and also they resolved it peacefully. Right. And diplomatically. I wonder if it's the flub of having that guy work there. Oh, with oh, no that's credentials true. and they just oh, don't want anything. That's a good point. Yeah, that would make them point. look very Oh bad. yeah, I should look I should look at that chronology again and see if they mention his name at all. Yeah, I bet it's it probably scrubbed tucked away. Yeah. What a jerk. <laughs> Seriously. Oh. Yeah, and to know that you don't have the credentials and then to be like, I'm actually going to make all the decisions about this riot. Yeah, I'm going to lone wolf this one. Like the ego to think that that would be, that you could handle that, that you would have those answers. Yeah, and I think it was like from the moment he got there, it was just winding down to that happening. There was no way around it, right. I think. And especially because he wasn't formally trained in any way. Yeah. He couldn't also, he could also not work with the warden of a, or the, you know, the warden of a prison. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's just, it's just mind boggling. It really makes you wonder about his mindset and arrogance to walk into a facility like that. It's one thing if you want to lie and get a job somewhere, but something so specific and so and high up. Yeah. And high up and like, like really president. important. Yeah. It's really important that you have a safe prison and that you have it running well for the inmates. And you're taking care of a lot of people. Yeah. And it's all they have. I read too that I think it was, I think in the 30s they abolished the use of this thing that I think was called the Oregon boot or the Oregon shackle. Have you heard of that? No. And it was like this giant piece of steel that went around your ankle, and then there was like a little bar that came off the back, like behind your heel, I think, and then it went under your foot or something like that. And it was like 25 pounds or 30 pounds, and it made it impossible to run away. So there were like no more escapes. Oof. But it also did a lot of damage to people's bodies. Yeah. <clears throat> damaged them mentally and uh, eventually was abolished. But they uh, they didn't make good decisions in prisons for prisoners. Yeah. That was more of a uh, convenience, I think. Right. To, hob to, to hobble people without actually cutting their, their feet off. Right. Pretty gross. Well, it's, it's always been like their second class citizens. Yeah. Right. That's how they were treated. And I mean, we still continue to see problems like that, but. Yeah, you know, I feel like reading about the the mother of one of the inmates that died from suicide, it feel it seems novel to me that a person would sue the state. You know, yeah, I, right. it, it just seems like such a a normal thing now. But then people would be like, "Well, I can't sue the, sue state. the state." <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's the government prison, huh? I think it's a really tough conversation of what should those expectations be for a prisoner? Because on one hand you think, oh, someone's in prison and it's a nonviolent drug offense, but it was enough that they got in the same prison with, you know, let's say like a Wesley Allen Dodd or somebody really horrific. So it's like, how do you find that balance of, of saying this is for rehabilitation? This is to keep you busy. You know, you had said like, idle hands the devil's play playground that, you know that, that's really been what i've thought the whole time is that at the very least 
you have to occupy the an inmate's mm-hmm. time. Yeah. But the but the most you should do is try to enrich their mind. Yeah. Well, even so, animals get enrichment toys. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But, you can't. So the you idea can't, that they're just locked in a room that, and see cement twenty three hours a day is kind of what do you expect? And then, and and when they were put in isolation, they it would be when till whenever they got out. Whenever they felt. Whenever like the it. guards or whoever. Because that's the thing. Isolation out. is not like a sentence. They, I mean, they can. They can say you're going there for ten days or whatever. But it's not like it goes through the courts, and they say. Okay, you'd gotten a fight at the dining hall. You're going into isolation for X number of days. It's like we're in charge. We decide. And isolation isolation should be banned for everyone. That does no good for anyone, no matter what they've done. But it is hard. You know, I remember growing up and back when my dad was a Republican and it was like, oh, what do they need cable TV for? And you still see that, you know, oh, they're bitching about cable and they're bitching about this. And it's like, for the most part, when you hear those arguments, I feel like it's from places that are really in desperate need. Like uh, a couple years ago in Texas when they had that heat wave and the power went out. So there was no air conditioning and all these prisoners were just in a cement hot box, you know. So it's like at the yeah, there at the very least should be those basic things. But I don't know what that answer is, because if someone I loved was hurt by someone and that person was in a prison. Mm hmm. I would want them to rot. I mean, it comes from learning and experimenting. And you look at other countries and how they handle prisoners. Yeah. If, you know, maybe if we adopted some of those processes or had different types of prison systems to see what the statistics show that works, we'd make progress. Because even now it's like we have these prisons for pay, basically. Right. There's constant problems. People still in isolation, people being abused. And I, yeah, I get it. Some of these people are terrible there. That doesn't mean like they're sentenced to daily abuse, you know? Right. We, we have to really think about that. Like, can people be rehabilitated? And and now in Oregon, we have different levels of prisons. Mm-hmm. People should be going to where they, what's appropriate. People right. go work release who it's appropriate for but I mean, it's still not perfect and it's never going to be, especially if we don't try right. new things. And it is really hard. I think it's a totally valid argument. Um, uh, you might be referencing there were pictures a couple years ago from like, was that a Swedish prison or something? Mm-hmm. And it was literally like a spa. Everyone yeah. had their little cabins out in the woods and, you know, like a retreat. And on one hand, it's like, that's how you rehabilitate. That's how you keep people from reoffending or at least in hopes of. But again, if I'm the victim or a victim family member and I'm looking at that, I'm being like, when do I get to go on my little retreat? Oh, I absolutely agree. You know, it's it's a really hard. I I think about it often, especially when we see cases like where somebody's daughter was killed. Yeah. And this perpetrator is getting out on parole. I get it. I totally get it. But I do think that they a lot of families see the benefits and there are a lot of families who have forgiven perpetrators. Because yeah. they've seen those benefits. Yeah. We did that case in Canada with that teenage boy that he apologized to the family mm-hmm. and, and they agreed he should be let out. So, I mean, I yes, it's hard. But at the same time, it's like, how are we going to get better if yeah. people are just being shoved away, learning how to be worse yeah. and then get out with no expectation? <laughs> They're just going to it's going to get worse and worse and worse. Yeah. And also, I was looking at our ballots yesterday for Oregon for the midterms. I haven't even looked at you know, what was going to be on the ballot. And there is uh, a measure there regarding involuntary labor and slave labor for people in prison. 
So that'll be cool to well, see if because it passes, at, uh, we'll see less people escaping, I think. Yeah. And at the very least, yeah, that needs to be abolished because that's a whole that's a whole nother corporation, you know, people owning prisons and then they have the prisoners that give free labor was, and people, you know, source oh, that labor. Was, and there was even an article, something I didn't put in this story that in that same within the span of those series of articles that came out about the prison, oh, uh-huh. there was a scam that the prison was running at the time where they were like selling prisoners blood to a a state lab that did testing mm. and they were doing some sort of thing where they were either not sending blood or they were saying that certain people sent blood who didn't and like prisoners were getting money. It was a whole, wow. whole scam that got busted right before that. So Yikes. that that stuff was happening then. Yeah. That sort of, um, well, I don't even know what you call that, but just like using shady. humans as like blood bags to make a little bit of money yeah. through your prison is well, just about I mean, the, one of the worst things I can that's we, awful. We've seen prisoners fight for the right to like donate, donate organs, mm-hmm. like especially death row. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that makes sense if they finally are, okay, well, okay, we'll permit it, and then they just of course, it. Yeah. yeah, they're like, and how can we get rich? It really does go back to that Woodstock thing, which everyone should watch, especially if you're around, because it's like, oh my god, I forgot. But it really was that moment of it. The people never mattered. It was never about the people, and it's same with the prisoners. It was never about that individual. It was never about their mental health, physical health, emotional health. You're housing them. You're basically a hotel without a concierge. Like you have to have everything operating and to break it down and cut those corners just to fill your pockets when it's actual human beings that you can't account for. You know, you can sit and do the numbers of, you know, oh, what will this get us and what will our profit margin be and da 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 da. Well, did you account for a riot when they get pissed off that you've been serving them horrible food nope, they and they can't not. go to the doctor? And had <laughs> they, had they, it probably would never have happened. Exactly. So if from the beginning you treat them like humans, the human element will be there and you can account for it and plan for it to an extent, obviously. But these fools. Josh, that was a fantastic 100th episode. Thank you very much. 100. I planned it out perfectly, so mine would be 100. Yeah. <laughs> um, We're just acknowledging it. We've yeah. had we've had you know minis and specials and anniversary shows, but this is our 100th case episode, if you will. So that's exciting. That's very exciting. And we're going to get to 200 faster now that we're weekly. Heck yeah. I would like to hear everyone's rose and thorn, if you will, of our 100 episodes. Do you all know what that means? Your favorite and least favorite? Yeah. Oh, no, that sounds hurtful. (laughs) What? No, just like of things you've learned or moments we've had or cases we've done or, you know, just the high and the low. All right. Let us know. No, I mean you right oh. now. I'm asking you. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's on the spot. Um, yeah, no thanks. Oh, all right. Oh, when we well, went to New York mind. was great. Um, our live show was amazing. These are roses or thorns. That, I love the live show. Live I would show love awesome. to do that. Um, I, it blows soon. my mind that our live show was so our first year. early. Yeah. I'm always like, oh, no, we were pretty deep into it. And no, I'm like, oh, we, we were like seven months and, into yeah. it. And we got to the point where we were sold out and a couple people walked off the street and asked me. And I'm like, well, I see some extra chairs oh, yeah, there. That sure. Was yeah. great. That was yeah. awesome. Yeah, the live show was awesome. And we, we do plan to do more of those. We've been we've been plotting, guys. Yep. Yeah. Once things plotting. are safe and good. Yeah, missing out on, uh, was it to the UK? 
That yeah. sucked. That, that was, sucked. That okay, was now I'm ready for the rose and thorn. Yeah. <laughs> it so took those, me a minute are, to warm up. Those are mine. Those were those seem like large opportunities and, yeah. and other live shows. Of, and speaking of, that brings up a good point. Like, we've missed out on a lot of crime con traveling that we had anticipated going to. So we're excited that we have a true crime festival coming up That's here right. in October. So if you want to see us do a live show, we will be doing it in Auburn, Washington on October 8th, I believe we're. Yeah, eighth and ninth will be up there. Yeah, you get their ticket for the whole weekend. We'll be there the whole weekend, and our show is on the eighth. And you can find out all about it at pnwtruecrimefest.com. Certainly can. Oh, speaking of Austria. What? In it's Agnald Schwarzenegger. <laughs> is that all your movies? Yeah. yeah. I'd never seen Commando, Total Recall, or Predator, <gasps> and now I've seen all three. You didn't see Total Recall? Mm-mm. It's such a jam. I yeah, mean, oh, it, I like the redo better, but <laughs> oh my god! <gasps> <gasps> I just like the I like the old one because it's funny. Like it's a little tongue in cheek, you know. I like the new one because the guy's hot. That's Wait, all. There is a new Total Recall. Yeah, Colin Farrell. <laughs> and Brian Cranston are no. the yep. That's they the good guy, it, bad like, guy. Super seriously. Yep. Oh, yep. it needs to be camping. And it was guys. directed by the guy who did all of the Underworld movies, so it's just blue. Oh. But and to be fair, I only watched it once. You know what? One remake was insanely good. I thought was RoboCop. Wow. But this I, is going nuts. I love. I love him. Oh, Em, you should watch a movie called The Informer that he is in, where he plays a guy. Who has to go into you prison. had me at he's in. He's well, he's shirtless, tattooed. Oh yes, and he's got to survive prison, oh, baby. Sing me it's a great. song, baby. <laughs> Y'all ready for this? Oh fuck, where's the keyboard again? Oh no. I don't know if you noticed. She went. She, she did give us a four star review at, in the beginning, with oh, with just yeah, it's commenting about to... her grammar. I think it's two now. Yeah, yeah. Two, uh, two stars. How does she really... do it? How does she? You find can just this... go edit it. No, I mean, how does she find the strength to, to keep listen listening to, us, to again? us even though she hates us <laughs> I so much? Because she likes to hate review. Like A lot of she... people do. Like They have no life, apparently. She yeah. needs to just make a show for herself, and she can be her own grammar Nazi. I need to admit something. <gasps> I'm Tilda Jean. No! Oh, my God. I would <laughs> die. I wish. I that wish. would be so funny. Oh, I should do that. What if she is them? <gasps> Conspiracy. Mm, I mean, maybe it is poorly written. <laughs> Tilda Jean, make yourself known. Sorry to brag. We have geese. She's on a crusade against the geese. So this week, you guys, here's Emily's thoughts this week. Can Hello? I make enough money on feetfinder.com that I can quit my job and just do this and sell foot pics? I'm going to try this this week and see how how it works. That's a that's a fun violation. I want you stepping in food, crunching berries. I want you shaving your toes, like anything. Yeah, anything goes. There's something for everyone. Pictures of the hairy ones. Yep. That big toe. <gasps> I call it Bilbo. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> I feel attacked. I've heard him call you that before. I've no, called the them toe, Hobbit feet. The toe. Nope. I've called them Hobbit feet. I've never heard yeah. him call them. Hobbit I don't think they're Hobbit feet. You have lovely feet. <sighs> you keep it outside this room. How many times do we need to oh. talk about that? I was just complimenting. He was just her. undoing the fact that he called my toe Bilbo. 
Vilto. <laughs> Froto Baggins. Froto! Well, sometimes it's like Frito Baggins. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I used to have very corn flavored, smelly. Ew. Feet. Corn flavored? Don't make me gag. Don't say that. Because I want corn on the I top and you're going to ruin it. I don't want to be gang banged today. We're going to do it with corn. <laughs> It's really hard, you guys, to work around not being able to hear. I'll tell you that. (laughs) 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 I wasn't sure how to respond. I I was sure. It's really hard. Showering and shitting in an abandoned military base for three days. I started laughing. I'm really sorry. (laughs) (laughs) You want me to see pooping? No, no. I'll just not laugh this time. (laughs) Thank you. She'll just be a big girl. She from Alaska? She is. Were you just talking about Alaska? No, David Sedaris was on CBS Sunday mornings. Because we're old. Don't admit that. <laughs> I'm not a part of that. My God. Hmm, let's see what's going on in Face the Nation. <laughs> we can't help that we're old. I had to look at Rick Scott's face today. I'd just like to note that I don't watch stuff like that. Just so You're... I'm not grouped with you two. Mm, <laughs> I think you do. No, I do not. I don't watch TV during the day. I don't. That's a very weird thing to be that defensive about. I just have. Mm. Stuff I do to do daytime viewing when I'm doing my work. To do. <laughs> I thought it was gonna be oh, shit. Me, me too. too. What could be better than a Costco hot dog and some Big Brother tonight? <laughs> or a barbecue here would have been nice. Oh, <laughs> that would have been nice. Yeah, Alicia. Sorry. I wish you could have been real nice. I wish you could have surprised me with that today, guys. <laughs> oh, no surprise barbecue again. We said it once, and I just expect it every Sunday. <laughs> that would have been fun, I guess, but whatever. <laughs> You're sad every week. <laughs> I don't want to see you. <laughs> you will see me. I would, love to, I would love it, but I know you're a busy woman. Also, that's daytime, and she does not watch TV in that's the daytime. That's true. I, I make exceptions I for only friends. only watch TV. In- oh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you. God. (laughs) How strange that we're going to be hanging out with Greg Olson. Uh, I can't wait to tell him how he ignored my emails. (laughs) (laughs) Wrapped like a Costco hot dog. We're like a responsible young penis. I'm a responsible young penis. <laughs> I'm wrapped <laughs> and ready for dipping. Oh. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> 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 you want to do some soaking? Docking. Soaking. Docking. What's that's... docking? Oh, that's different. Yeah. <laughs> that's I just remembered. Different. I just remembered. Leave me alone. A little different. Leave me alone. I've docked myself, I guess, onto some stuff. Maybe <laughs> it's there. It's just like a little. It's like a little extra pair of little kissy lips or something. <laughs> <laughs> Kiss my sandwich. I like a good denim on denim. What can I say? I just meant it was a clear. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. It sounded great. Okay. You know I can't help myself. I'm I know. Sorry. Oh, and I, I didn't mean to give such a serious response in that second. I don't know why I sounded no, like such a little okay. serious felt... jerk. I just wanted to make sure it was clear. Yeah. Okay? That felt fun. That was good. You guys feeling. didn't do a barbecue for me again? <laughs> <laughs> I specifically said last week I wanted a barbecue. <laughs> How many times must I beg for a surprise barbecue? Get you some lays instead. Hey, I've never had a surprise party, okay? I've always wanted one. Well, just get ready. that out there. 
Surprise, surprise. Wait, six, seven, eight. Oh my gosh. What? Mm, interesting. Nine, ten? This month is her half birthday. Well, Nine, ten. He just kept counting. Well, well. <laughs> <laughs> On Valentine's Day. <gasps> <laughs> and now you know why anytime I write Valentine's Day, I also say, and Emily's birthday, yeah. so you don't just have a gasp. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a coincidence. <laughs> I didn't mean it to be so loud. <laughs> That's my day. That's my very special love day. That's when everyone loves me. And they buy everyone each ca candies. What? Get candy, everyone each candies and gifts. And it's the day I was born. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, just get ready. I'm gonna say it again. Okay, I'm fine. okay. I'm, I'm just fine. just prepare Let me yourself. Cough, yeah. <laughs> My birthday. <laughs> I heard it. <laughs> wish I'm sorry. You know who we I, are. I wish I didn't trust you guys. <laughs> I was stupid to do that. That's you're having the Emily thing. I think I have Greg Kinnear's syndrome. What is it called? <laughs> <laughs> Greg Kinnear's syndrome. Meniers. <laughs> yep, same thing basically. <sighs> what? <sighs> they got their wish. Mm -mm. Fish, fish. <laughs> did that help? Mm -hmm. <laughs> they got their fish. I did have a man. Oh, fuck up in here. Leash. Oh. A Gladden for a Randall. Oh. <clears throat> Classic mix-up. A Gladden for a Randall. It's all the same letters. Could I exchange this Gladden for a Randall, actually? <laughs> he claimed to have served with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Sorry. That's fine. <laughs> he claimed to have served with the Federal Bureau of... Jeez. Jeez. <laughs> Young, Ooh, I'm the hungry. Federal Bureau of Cheese? I'd work there. <laughs> I'm an assistant. I have the biggest fucking mosquito bite on my foot, and it is causing me desperation for itching. He often ate with inmates and chatted with them in the yard. I heard he brought the milkshakes there, too. <laughs> and if you see me there, and you... <laughs> Just give my my cheeks a little a little slap you back and forth. We decided a high five. I, you high five my butt cheeks, <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll give you a bag of peanuts. I thought it was yogurt. I'm out of I'm out of yogurt. <laughs> Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough, edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at Patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>